when I look back on some of the diversions and the changes in my path, they all led to here. And I think so, you know, trusting that and never believe giving up your belief on yourself and your ability and what you can achieve and change in the world, because we all have that ability if we keep going. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm so excited that you're listening to the show today. We have Kimberly Bryant, the founder and executive director of Black Girls Code, an incredible nonprofit based here in San Francisco that is all about educating young African-American women around math and engineering and learning how to code and become a developer. Kimberly's story is an incredible one. She didn't mean to start a nonprofit, but she saw a problem in the world and something really personal to her own experiences and her family and wanted to make a change. So I'm really excited to dive into the conversation with Kimberly, and you guys are going to learn a ton about what Black Girls Code does and Kimberly's path to starting it and really incredible advice she has for listeners out there. Before we get started, I want to thank our partner, General Assembly. Check out ga.co. Use the offer code MAKINGWAYS at checkout, and you can take a class about learning to become a coder or UX designer or developer. So check them out, use the code, and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get started with the conversation with Kimberly. Enjoy. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so glad to have you here. So let's start off, and I'd love to hear a little bit about Black Girls Code and what the organization does. Sure. So Black Girls Code is a nonprofit organization that was founded here in the Bay Area in 2011. Our focus is really on introducing girls from underrepresented communities to computer programming and technology. Um, We do that with a series of after-school programs that happen throughout the year, We bring in girls ages 7 to 17. We teach them about things like web design, game development, robotics, VR, really any technology tool that that really is emerging in the space and the industry right now. We try to make sure that they're introduced to it. And the goal and overall vision is really to create this next generation of leaders that will be able to, you know, start their own companies, work at the Googles, the Twitters, the Facebooks in the future, but really driving it through and up to become a more diverse and inclusive culture. And what's your day-to-day role like there? So as the founder and CEO of Black Girls Co., my day-to-day role is a little bit of everything wrapped up into one. You know, my <laughs> primary focus is always on, you know, driving the vision and really making sure that we create partnerships and uh, we create opportunities for the organization. So that's primarily in a nutshell what I do, but that's everything from making sure the programs are running effectively, making sure people get paid, which I was doing this morning is running around trying to get our payroll, make sure payroll was done. And, you know, a little bit of everything from a founder standpoint. And you had a a long, prestigious career in corporate America. At what point did you leave corporate America to start your own thing, start this organization? Well, my path to really working as the founder and executive director of BGC did not happen overnight. So I started the organization in 2011, but I did not 
fully commit in terms of doing this and only this full time until about 2013, the middle of 2013. But before that time, I was really um, focused on trying to do this as a passion project while I was doing my day job. So I would go to work and, you know, do my project management work at, I was consulting at the time when I started Black Girls Co. And I would do that during the day and in between time. And at night I would focus on Black Girls Co. Until I could not do both at the same time. And that was about 2013 when I finally made the leap um, to really focus on this as my full-time job. So you kept it as a side hustle until it became overwhelmingly clear that you needed to go all in to get it to the next stage? Without a doubt. Um, I would say that I probably kept this a little bit longer than I probably should have because um, it was about um, akin to working two full-time jobs at one time by by a certain point. And I just had to to make a leap out there into, into nothingness, really, because I did not... Um, support myself with a salary and probably to almost another year. So it was really me deciding I needed to focus on this full time, taking my savings and saying, okay, I'm going to use these savings and pull everything out of my 401k because I believe in this vision and do this until I can actually pay myself a salary. And that didn't happen to almost a year later. Wow. Is there something looking back at that time now, if you could kind of whisper to yourself, what what would you say? Because it sounds like it would be very stressful to risk everything, put it all on the line for this. But obviously, it's served you well, it served the community and the world so well. What would you say to yourself? I probably would say something like trust in your vision and, and have faith. Because the pieces will come together. So, like, I, I honestly, you know, I mean, can't say I don't want other entrepreneurs to think this is an easy thing to do because it was not. It was, like, very scary, um, especially for me as a single parent because I was it was not just myself that I was supporting. I was also supporting my daughter. You know, I was making sure that, you know, her school was – tuition was paid for, that she had the things that she needed. Uh, but I just really believe so much in this vision that – I. I just can't had to take this as a, a risk. So really not being afraid to take the risk is something that I would say, although it was scary to do that, and really kind of trust in the process. And you mentioned your daughter. I know that she's at the heart of Black Girls Code and how the idea came to be. Were you surprised that she faced a similar kind of lack of diversity in her engineering and science classes as you had as a young person interested in math and science? Yeah, I was having lunch today with someone and I kind of mentioned that um, really the motivation for starting Black Girls Co. for me was the realization that my daughter's classroom, you know, 30 plus years later, you know, from the time that I went to college, looked very similar to what my freshman um, engineering classroom looked like. Just one little girl of color, then a sea full of white men or boys in her case, and, and that's it. And it was mind-boggling to me that we would be here in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area where tech was so prevalent as a tool for folks every day in their careers, et cetera, and her classroom was looked like my classroom looked in the mid-'80s. And that was like a motivator for me to really make this organization come into existence because I didn't see anyone else doing it. And what are some of your earliest memories of loving math and science? 
Well, I will say for me as an engineer, my earliest, um, I always loved math. Like that was my thing, the numbers. And that's probably because I always was like a little business person, even as a kid. Like I was walking around trying to sell candy in the neighborhood when I was like six or seven or sell calendars or something left over from my grandma's um, church hands or anything. Like I was like about the person that liked to make money as a kid. Like, so the numbers and, and putting numbers together and math, that just came sort of naturally for me. Um, I would say science did not necessarily become as a natural gift for me because I was um, raised with an older brother, you know, in the mid 60s, end of the 60s, into the 70s. And those science topics were things and exploration and things of that nature were things that were focused on him and directed towards him and not to me. Like that was not, those were not things that I was like encouraged to explore at all even though I definitely had a very technical mind. Um, but it wasn't, you know, I was very gendered in terms of the educational pathways for both my brother and I that did not necessarily lead me down the science pathway. So it really wasn't until I really got into like upper elementary, high school, and was on these accelerated tracks in terms of academic pathways that led me to really dive deeper into math and science and eventually, you know, go to school as an engineer. And this is a pretty big question, but from your experiences, what do you think is at the heart of young women and women of color not being encouraged in these areas or not feeling comfortable enough to pursue these areas of of studies and ultimately move into the workforce? Well, I think that when we look at studies, it's definitely been shown that statistically girls are just as good at math and science, especially up to middle school, as their male peers. And they may even over-index in terms of competency on math levels. But something happens in middle school. A lot of that has been you know, attributed to societal factors, pressures, um, stereotypes of what girls should and shouldn't do that really become prevalent in middle school, which is the key developmental phase for most girls. So if they're reaching their peak at this moment in time when folks are, they're receiving messages, either implicit or non-implicit messages that they're not supposed to be into math or science, that tends to discourage girls from, you know, continuing along that pathway. You know, I definitely can attest to that as a girl in my upbringing, that being the case, especially by the time I was in middle school, uh, when I would have been going into more in-depth study. But I even see it today, you know, in like some of the classrooms that my daughter uh, was in in her middle school. And as her interest really started to bubble up around tech and specifically around gaming, um, the folks that were in a lot of these programs and after school camps, they did not look like her. And so a lot of that messaging that she was getting, you know, from society and from the images that she saw did not necessarily um, lead her to believe that it was a place that she belonged. So that's really what our focus is with Black Girls Code is to change that you know, paradigm, to really make a shift in terms of letting girls know that, yeah, you're also, you're talented in this, you do this well, you have an interest and you actually belong here. So now that you've been doing this for a few years, have you been able to see some tangible results? I'm sure you have wonderful stories of women who have gone through the program, but are you starting to see kind of breaks in this wall and a change happen? 
I'm definitely, you know, it's been, this is our sixth full year of being in operation and I can definitely see changes. Um, Definitely see changes in the girls that have been with Black Girls Code in terms of them really um, finding their way in their pathway and their focus in the, in the field of technology from my daughter who just graduated and now is, you know, planning to go into college and major in computer science to other girls that are in her same age range that did the same and, you know, found their passion and maybe gained development. And now they're at CS Hayward. I have a, a girl student that's going to uh, Cal State Hayward. And then there's students that have been um, in the program for a very long time that have like really taken their interest to the next level and majored in a computer science field. But I'm also seeing, um, Maybe a change in the discussion and in the narrative just on a broader basis. So I think when we started, you know, there was a lot of questions from folks that we got. Well, why do you need a Black Girls Code? Why is this program necessary? I think that we don't get that at that question as much. I think there's definitely been a shift in terms of the conversation around why programs like this are needed. Uh, and there's lots of different um, advocacy around making sure that these programs are supported, both from the government level, private industry level, local governmental agencies that are really supporting this type of work. And that's a definite change from when we started. And did you receive encouragement that comes to mind around pursuing this track in college? And what was your college experience like? You mentioned being kind of one of the few women of color in your classes And at the heart of it, I guess I'm wondering what kept your head in the game to kind of keep going, keep pushing through these environments where you didn't necessarily always feel welcome to get to to where you are? Well, I always like to, you know, just kind of say that college for me was like very difficult. Um, I came from um, an environment and upbringing in Memphis, Tennessee, you know, in the inner city. And a neighborhood that did not have lots of um, college graduates, especially in engineering. And although I was, you know, really blessed to be in accelerated programs, I was not necessarily as prepared as perhaps some of my peers when I got to school at Vanderbilt and majoring in engineering. So it was difficult from that standpoint, even as a very good student. I think it was even more difficult from the standpoint that, um, I went into an environment at Vanderbilt that was not diverse at all, especially in the School of Engineering. Like there's just a handful of African-American engineering students, and there are probably only about two or three of us in doubly that were in the doubly major, and then there were just a handful of women. So it was extremely difficult to persist through those four years. And there are times when I like leave, I wasn't that far, I was from Memphis, Tennessee, but like literally leave, get on a Greyhound bus, go home. and like, I'm never going back to that place ever again. Um, because it was that intense. It was that much of, in, in many cases, an unwelcoming environment. I think for me, without a doubt, I will say the thing that helped me to persist was kind of finding my community or finding my tribe. Um, One of my very best friends from college was an upperclassman, also a woman of color, majoring in electrical engineering. I met her in my freshman year, and that became, uh, she became a lifeline for me of sorts, because here was another young woman of color 
similar background and experience who was also majoring in electrical engineering, but had actually been successful at it. So that gave me, I think, a role model, a tangible role model that I could rely on when there were times of doubt. There's many times of doubt. And so that was key and critical to me. And then finding those other communities of students of color that could support me and, and give me even just tangible support, like leading me to where the test file was um, when everybody else in class had it, but nobody shared it with me. Um, those were things that were critical. And if it weren't for having those really communities of support in college, I, I don't think I would have been able to, to persist. Um, and then I would say finally just being too stubborn to not succeed. Like that's just, you know, when I feel like for me, like growing up with an older brother who's two years, you know, ahead of me and not, you know, having a certain amount of, of hard uh, headedness because of that experience, to, to be honest, that prepared me greatly for being in these male dominated environments because I was used to it, right? Like when you, when you have an older brother, you're trying to run around, and do everything they do. Yeah. There are all these other boys and you're used to being, you know, a girl in a room or a space full of boys. So that helped a lot in terms of me being able to have enough grit and fight to force my way into these spaces that weren't as welcoming. Um, but, you know, every woman doesn't have that. And so that's why I think it, the, it, the industry and the space needs to change and become more inclusive because everybody's not coming from that background. Like, if it's my daughter, she's the only child. She's not, <laughs> it's not the same. Right. Like, but when you have to fight a two-year-old older brother all your life, you know, you got to get used to being in these male-dominated spaces and rooms and fighting for what, you know, to be heard. Um, but I want to create an industry that's inclusive, that women don't have to fight to be heard. What advice do you give around helping to find your tribe or maybe find a mentor for young women? Because as you said, that was really crucial in college for you. Are there networks? Are there systems? Or is there just a friendliness and approach that you tend to give people advice around? Well, I feel that community is is key. It's so very important. I think one of the core elements of success factors for Black Girls Code is the fact that we create this really solid community around our girls. And many times the girls come to classes back after back because of that community. And so I think that's key for women, especially women in male-dominated fields, to find that group. And it doesn't necessarily have to be um, a group that's specifically related to your career field. For me, it was, you know, like tapping into groups like the National Society of Black Engineers or for our girls, you know, tapping into Black Girls Code. But when I was first starting to like, you know, kind of dip my toes back in the tech industry, there were organizations like so what Society of Women Engineers or Women Who Code or Girl Develop It that really provided that support network that career level women really needed and could rely on to kind of give us those lifelines within the tech industry where if we didn't have them in our own workplaces. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about our partner General Assembly. Check out generalassembly at ga.co and you can use the offer code makingways at checkout to receive 15% off any class or workshop. 
If you're interested in dipping a toe in the water of learning how to become a developer or learning how to code or even learning digital marketing or UX design and research, check out GA.co and they're an incredible resource. Even if you don't end up taking a class there, go to their website and read some of the amazing articles they have there. Okay, let's get back to the show. And let's talk a little bit about your career in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. You worked at Pfizer and Merck and Genentech and Novartis. And I'd love to hear about some of the most challenging times you faced. And also just a little bit about the actual kind of work that you executed there and mm-hmm. some accomplishments that you look back on fondly. Sure. So I spent most of my career, even though I I, I ended up in tech and the tech side and I have a a minor in computer science, my background was really heavy industry. So for most of my career, right out of college, I was in major industrial companies right on the ground floor, like in the manufacturing area, right in the field for almost all of my career. So it wasn't until really Bay Area, even the last part of my time in in corporate America here that I ended up being like in the cubicle, so to speak, as a techie. (laughs) From before that, I was always in the field, always like very hands-on. So it's even more of a uh, masculine-facing type of existence, I think, when you're in the field on a manufacturing floor wearing a hard hat safety shoes every day. It was like, it was very hardcore, you know, masculine type environment. Um, but I loved it because it was, I, I think as a learner, you know, I learned best by being able to see things, see how they work, see how they fit and things go together. And so as an engineer being in the field, um, there was no better place for me to kind of learn my craft, so to speak. Um, I went from the chemicals industry to the consumer products manufacturing industry, high-speed manufacturing, then into pharmaceutical industry, and then biotech. Uh, So I spent a lot of time really um, building things, you know, from building factories that actually created products. And I love the work that I ended up doing in the pharmaceutical and biotech industries, particularly around cancer medications and being able to work with the scientists that were bringing, scaling up a product and putting it into the marketplace, either to market it or to test it. And I love that work. I really, really loved it. I think the challenging parts of some of the work was, you know, just being uh, very fresh out of college, a year out of college in my first engineering role, I was put into manufacturing as a manager. And I had a manufacturing team that was all at least about 40 years my senior. And it was who were also, um, these were unionized workers. And to say that was a difficult task would be an understatement. <laughs> when, you know, you're managing folks that are old enough to be your father or grandfather and in a unionized environment. It was, it was, it was rough at times. But Did I, you have to win them over or did you just have to absolutely I had to win them over and I think for me being an engineer it helped a lot being a technical person because I could actually be in the field and being hands-on it helped because a lot of times a lot of the um, my my direct reports who were a lot older than me actually took me under their wing and like taught me a lot of things because uh, I would look like to me like their daughter, the granddaughter, whatever, but it worked. Um, but there were also times that that didn't work in my advantage as a new manager because I would be, there are times when I would be on a project or putting in an, a large manufacturing installation and be out in the field with a junior engineer 
and I could have construction managers, you know, direct the conversation to my direct report, who was a junior engineer, not me. So there are little things like that, you know, the little microaggressions that happened as a day-to-day basis as a, as a woman in leadership. Um, so there were, there were highs and lows, right? So being able to like see my team, like over, overachieve and achieve some, some project goal that no one other manager had ever been able to do were things that were very high highs in terms of the path. But there are also these little things along the way, um, as a woman in the field of engineering and as a leader that were also, um, negative experiences, but also learning ones at the same time about how to really, um, thrive and I think survive as a woman in leadership. And when did you make the transition into technology? When you got to the Bay Area, did you start to get into it? Well, I was always in the engineering field. Um, so I was always in engineering management. Got it. But it wasn't until I moved to the Bay Area that I actually, my department, which was a manufacturing department originally, uh, we did we worked on the systems in, within the facility for um, the biotech company that I worked at that time, which was Genentech was actually forcefully pushed, I would say to this day, into the IT department because we were working with all the systems for manufacturing. And um, I kind of went into IT kicking and screaming, like, I am an engineer. I'm not going over there. I don't want to be there. And it's interesting now. It's actually kind of hilarious that, you know, my work is all about technology because I was dead set. Uh, about going into the IT department. I really felt that, you know, I'm an engineer. I'm not going to sit in a cubicle all day. That's not what I do. And, you know, now my work is really more focused on the IT side of things. So who knows? Maybe that's where I'm supposed to be. What advice do you give women who are either starting a company or are in new leadership positions? I'm sure it's a big, you know, big menu of experiences. Um to advise them on, but are there kind of starting points that you like to mentor people around? Absolutely. I would say, you know, first and foremost, just, just be open to risk taking as much, you know, um, I would say, you know, be very intentional risk taking like, like the ASIC. So I think you should be able to, to take some intentional risk and in, in things that may be a little scary because I didn't know anything about like running a nonprofit when I started BGC. This was like something, a problem I was trying to solve for my daughter, like how to run a nonprofit, any of the details, none of that was any information that I knew. I had to figure that out. And so had I like stopped and, or, you know, taken five years to do, figure it all out and then start, then I would not be, you know, where the organization is today. So that first step is important and that you may have to do that with some uncertainty and with some level of risk. So do that, you know, make yourself comfortable with that level of risk. Better to dive in than kind of sit on it, wait, try to learn everything you can and then start. Without a doubt. So like, I think one of the things that was very beneficial to me is that because I was initially, you know, focusing on starting a for-profit startup, like this whole concept of lean methodologies and lean startup, that is what I had been learning. So I started Black Girls Code with those concepts in mind, which means you don't have 100% of your concept done before you start. You may have 50%, maybe it could be less. You have a little bit and then you iterate on that idea. So I think that helped me to kind of like get it moving, get it out of the gate. 
Uh, and then I think the next thing that I, I consistently learn more and more now that your network is your net worth. So my skill set in networking that I had really achieved through all these years of being in corporate America served me well, like extremely well, because I was used to networking because that, that's what I did. Like at corporate America, that's like my thing. I network. But that really helped me tremendously as an entrepreneur because that allowed me to talk to folks when I did not have the answers myself. Or when I was curious about how another organization did something to be able to get on the phone and ask someone to connect me or set up a meeting. And then eventually for me to eventually get to the point now that I spend like 90% of my time fundraising. Um, but because I'm used to networking, that has something that has become a skill set for me as well. So really learning how to network, how to utilize your network and creating that network before you actually need it. And for listeners out there who are getting excited and energized about Black Girls Code, and maybe they have a young African-American woman in their life, in their family, and they want them to get excited about engineering and taking these classes, where are the classes located across the country? And how can people get involved? Sure. So for Black Girls Code, we consider ourselves a volunteer-powered organization. So we have two offices, one in Oakland and one in New York City. But we have chapters all across the U.S. and one chapter in Johannesburg, South Africa. So we have 14 chapters to date. All of those those chapters are really volunteer-supported in the various cities. So there's Bay Area, New York, Miami. DC, Boston, there's a full list of chapters on our website. And if folks are interested, there's no no registration fee. You just sign up for a class. So like if you're if we're in a city near you or if you know somebody that's in one of the cities, direct them to the website. They can sign up for the mailing list or they can register for a class right then and there. And what about teaching and, and mm -hmm. things like that? So one of the things that really is sort of like the special piece of BGC, again, is the this, this strong core volunteers that we have. So although we create the curriculum and the workshop structure, it's, it's volunteers that actually come in and teach these classes. So these are folks that are like engineers at these major tech companies. They could be teachers that are teaching computer science or tech. All of those folks come in, they learn the curriculum that we have in place for them, and they go in the classroom and teach the girls. So this volunteer network is kind of a core piece of what makes BGC be able to do so much with very small staff. It's really those volunteers. So in those same cities, you know, people can tap in to become a volunteer, either an instructor, a technical assistant. We also have non-technical volunteers that help us with the workshops as well. And so your daughter, Kai, now is entering college. Mm -hmm. And in a few years, she'll be entering the workforce. Yep. What is the change you hope to see in the workforce by the time she's out there in the world and you know maybe a few years beyond that what is what is your vision around how you'd like things to operate what i really hope to see by the time kai enters the workforce and other girls within bgc as well is just an acceptance of women being in the field of engineering and computer science in particular as the norm and not the exception right so i don't i don't want her to be the unicorn in the room i want that to be like 
The sparrow in the room or what is what something that's really common. I don't know, pigeons, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. But I don't want her to be a unicorn. I want her to be the norm and I want her to be um, comfortable with being able to have a voice in an organization that's diverse and inclusive with the variety of individuals around the table. I don't think we're there yet. I don't even know if we're going to get there by the time she gets her very first job. But I know that we will get there eventually. It may take us 10 years. It may take us 15. But I think the, the needle was moving in that direction. If not from anything other than demographics, it has to move. It has to change. And so what I hope that what we can do with Black Girls Code by the work that we are doing, the voice that we have in the space, and also by these leaders that we are creating is really start to slowly but surely change the norm so that women and girls and people of color become the norm in the workplace and not the exception. How do you think diversity then kind of comes through in terms of how products are developed mm -hmm. and then how products service different communities? Because there's another end to this equation that you're building towards. Mm -hmm. What's your viewpoint on that? So I think that actually is the most important part about diversity and inclusion. That's it. Like, yes, it's good that we're more diverse and inclusive and there are more women in the room. That's great. But that's not the main driver. The main reason is because the more voices you have at the table of creation, the more diversity of projects and products can be created that address a variety of different goals and a variety of different needs. So it's unrealistic to me to think that we're going to take a white male from Palo Alto who's grown up there all his life, who can create a product which addresses a need from East Oakland. Like that's just not possible. I mean, maybe it could happen. But, then, but it's unlikely, yeah, right? Yeah, they haven't they, had the experience. You haven't had the same life experiences, right? So I think that's the true benefit that we see in terms of making a more diverse and inclusive tech environment. I feel that tech should be used for, like, to solve some of these endemic social issues and problems that we have in the world. I don't think we're using tech for that right now. Now, I use my tech, um, my phone, to get a car to come over here today. <laughs> And I appreciate that, but that's like a first world problem, right? That's not something that, you know, even five years ago that I would have said is a necessity. So what about those things that folks that are not in some of the more privileged communities have a need? What about meeting their need through the use of tech? Since it's so common that we all use it. And I think by creating this diversity and pool of talent, we'll get those products created or we'll at least get closer. And those products feeding more of the world and more diverse communities in the world will improve more people's lives and lift more people Absolutely. up. Absolutely. And, you know, in this, that, that phrase that, you know, rising tide raises all ships. I think about this one thing, this one um, particular app that the girls created a few years ago in a hackathon that. It touched me so deeply because I didn't even realize this was this an issue that they saw. But um, they were in this hackathon, and they had to create a product that addressed a need for women. And the girls that were in this group, including my daughter, um, they created this app called Ohana, which means no one gets left behind. And it was like a wearable jewelry type device that a girl would clip or a woman would clip on her you know, it could clip on our hair. It, could, it was sort of like a brooch looking, like barrette looking clip, but it was actually a tracker so that if they were walking home from school, this is how they described it. 
and they felt that they were in distress or they felt uncomfortable or unsafe, they could activate this wearable device, which is also connected to a mobile app. And it would alert like the, um, it would alert like the police department. It would alert the key emergency contacts that she was in distress and, you know, she could do that in an inconspicuous way. And I was not, you know, I did not tell them to create this, you know, they just created and ideated it on their own. And it was shocking and, you know, kind of like, you know, I don't know, it was, it kind of shook me up a bit because my daughter like takes pub at that time, you know, she was taking public transportation. So there were times when she was alone coming home from school and it never really occurred to me until they created that application and that device that they may feel unsafe. And this is how it was reflected in what this product that they created and ideated on their own. These were girls like 12 to 13 or 14. And so it blew my mind. Right. So now, that's not something that would normally be created for these girls, but this is a problem that they saw. So I think just getting more of those type of ideas out into the world, they help everyone, not just those girls. They help, you know, women all over the place. Yeah, that's incredible and um, it's shocking, you know, yeah. that 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 was the the go to. And yeah, as you said, maybe people wouldn't think that they would feel that kind of stress and, Absolutely. and fear going through their days, but Absolutely. it's a need and they solved it. That's incredible. Yeah. So you've been named by the White House, a champion of change for tech inclusion. You've also been named one of the 25 most influential African-Americans in technology by Business Insider. I'm just wondering what these awards and these recognitions mean to you and mean to the organization. Well, I mean, I think for me, it feels somewhat surreal at times. Um, it it was never my intention um, intention to start this organization to receive awards. It was really because I felt this strong need as a mother to create a solution to, to solve a problem that was I could directly see impacted my daughter, and I wanted to create a better world and experience for her. Um, but I remember vividly, like one of the very first awards that we received, large awards that we received as an organization from Bank of the West. And when we got this award, it, it was it was large for us at that time. It was a $50,000 grant, and we were um, recognized as an innovative nonprofit. And when I accepted that award, I cried. Like, literally, could not get through speech because I was crying <laughs> because it was the first time that you know, we had had this mainstream recognition uh, for the work. So we, it was a validation of sorts that people saw us. And not only did they see us, they saw that this was something that was important and they validated the work that we had done. And so it was emotional from that standpoint. And so I think for me, every award is, a, is, an, is an addition to that. It's an, another step of being validated, not only just validated for the work that we've done, and we do work very hard, but also it's deeper than that, right? It's a validation that these girls matter, and 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 the focus on them is not misdirected. So that, that speaks to me, right? Because these girls are really me. You know, that was me, like, 
long time ago, 50 years ago, those were me. I was that little black or brown girl who liked math but wasn't really getting paid attention to. And so every time, you know, that we get an award or I get recognized, it goes back to that really deep core of being seen, being recognized, and now having my voice heard and and via me, the voices of my girls. And you bring those awards back and you say, this is really, this is it for you. This is your award. Absolutely. So we have those, you know, in the office, the girls are now, they start to get their own awards and we put those in the office. Uh, so it's always about that and making sure that they see and, and seeing it through their eyes is something that like even makes it even more, more special. So for someone out there who feels like an outsider, because of their race, because of their gender, because of their orientation, whatever it may be, what do you tell that person, both who's in school, in the classroom, and in the workforce, about how to potentially get through it, how to make it better, and you know, give back and, and kind of not only survive, but thrive? I would say without a doubt, the first and foremost thing I always want to let people know is that you matter and you're enough. I think it's unfortunate that we we tend to live in a society that often tells those of us that 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 may live on the fringes or may not be um, included as a norm that we are not enough, but we are. We we have everything that we need right from the time that we take that very first breath. So they are enough. Um, so it's really also that I want them to focus on self and be able to tune out the negative messages that we see sometimes outside of ourselves in the world and be able to push through and focus on what you want to do that makes you happy, that makes you get up every morning, that makes you thrive and finding that because that's sometimes the harder thing to do. Um, But really being able to trust that, you know, every step that you take will get you to where you need to be. I didn't know that. Like you asked me like five, even five years ago, I would not tell you I'll be running BGC like that. I did not want to run nonprofit. Like, don't be honest. I did not (laughs) want to do that. Um, But here I am. And when I look back on some of the diversions and the changes in my path, they all led to here. And I think so, you know, trusting that and never believe giving up your belief on yourself and your ability and what you can achieve and change in the world, because we all have that ability if we keep going. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It's such an honor to talk to you. And uh, I appreciate all the work you're doing to change the world. And and thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, that was our conversation with Kimberly Bryant, the founder and executive director of Black Girls Code. Kimberly, it was truly an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. And for listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Kimberly and Black Girls Code, please go to blackgirlscode.com. Maybe there's a young person in your life who could benefit by taking a class or a program at Black Girls Code, or maybe you or a friend or family or loved one could teach there. And if not, certainly could contribute in some way by volunteering. So check out Black Girls Code. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms. And there's some music by Jim Heffernan in the show as well. You guys should check out makingways.co. We've got original illustrations of each of our guests that I do. Uh, Also original articles and show notes. You can go beyond the episode to learn more about our guests and what they've been up to. 
can follow us on all the social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. We're on Medium, on Instagram. And if you're a fan of Making Ways and you're listening every week, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. It's a really powerful way to expose the show to more and more people. Okay, have a great week. I'll see you soon.